Chapter 13 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The French Revolution by Robert Madison Johnston. Chapter 13 The Reign of Terror. For six weeks after the fall of the Gironde, until the 13th of July, the course of events in France, both in Paris and in the provinces, reflected the bitterness of the two factions, conqueror and conquered. In a minor way, it also revealed the fundamental difference of attitude between the two wings of the successful party, between Danton, content to push the Girondins out of the way of the national policy, and Robespierre, rankling to destroy those who offended his puritanical and exclusive doctrine. The Girondins had behind them a strong country backing. They had always been the advocates of the provinces against Paris. Some of them had declared for federalism, for local republics, semi-independent states centering about Lyon, Marseille, Bordeaux. Those who succeeded in escaping from Paris made their way to where they might obtain support, and found, here and there, arms open to receive them. Lyon had risen against the government on the 29th of May, and had rid itself of the Jacobin committee headed by Chalier, that had so far held it under control. Marseille followed the example of Lyon. Normandy, where a considerable group of the fugitive deputies sought refuge, began to make preparations for marching on the capital. This was serious enough, but two other dangers, each greater, threatened Paris. The military situation on the northern frontier was still no better. While the Vendians were advancing from success to success, were increasing the size, the confidence, the efficiency of their armies. In such a desperate situation, Danton seemed the only possible savior, and for a few weeks he had his way. New generals were appointed. Custine to the Netherlands, Poinet to the Rhine, Biron to the Vendée, and at the same time negotiations were opened with the powers. But fortune refused to smile on Danton. Ill success met him at every turn, and opened the way to power for Robespierre. On the 10th of June, the Vendion captured the town of Samur on the Loire, giving them a good passage for carrying operations to the northern side of the river. A council of war decided that an advance should be made into Brittany and Normandy, both strongly disaffected to the convention. In the latter province, Brissot and Bouzot were already actively forming troops for the projected march against Paris. But before advancing to the north, the Vendion generals decided that it was imperative they should capture the city of Nantes, which controls all the country about the mouth of the Loire. Preparations were made accordingly, and, as the Vendion had no siege train, Catalinio and Charette headed a desperate assault against the city on the 29th of June. Catalinio was killed. Nantes defended itself bravely. The Vendion were thrown back, and, as many writers have thought, their failure at that point and at that moment saved the Republic. Apart from this one success, everything had been going ill with Danton's measures, and the Robespierreists were making corresponding headway. On the 10th of July, the Committee of Public Safety was reconstituted, and Danton was not re-elected. Couthon and Saint-Just joined it, and Robespierre himself went on two weeks later, among the other members, Berrier for the moment followed Robespierre, while Carnot accepted every internal measure, concentrating all his energy on the administration of the War Department. It was just at this instant, 
with the Vendion for the moment checked, that Normandy made its effort. On the 13th of July, its army, under the Baron de Wimpfen, a constitutional monarchist, was met by a Parisian army at Pacy, thirty miles from the capital. The Normans met with defeat, a defeat they were never able to retrieve. On the same day, a dramatic event was occurring at Paris, the last despairing stroke of the Gironde against its detested opponents. From Cannes, where Brissot and Bouzeau had been helping to organize Wimpfen's army, there had started for the capital a few days previously a young woman, Charlotte Corday. Full of enthusiasm, like Madame Roland, for the humanitarian ideals that blended so largely with the passions of the Revolution, she represented, in its noblest, most fervent form, that French provincial liberalism that looked to the Girondins for leadership. Like them, she detested the three great figures who had led the Parisian democracy through massacre to its triumph. Danton, Robespierre, Marat. And of the three, it was Marat who worked deepest on her imagination. Marat, always baying for blood, always scenting fresh victims, always corrupting opinion with his scum of printer's ink and poison. To Charlotte Corday it appeared that in this one individual all that was noble and beautiful in the Revolution was converted to all that was hideous and ignoble, and she slowly began to perceive that even a feeble woman like herself could remove that blot from France, if only she could find the courage. On the 13th of July, Charlotte Corday accomplished her twofold sacrifice. She gained admission to Marat's house and stabbed him in his bath. She meekly but courageously accepted the consequences. After being nearly lynched by the mob, she was tried by the Revolutionary Tribunal and sent to the guillotine. The Prussians captured Mainz on the 23rd of July, the Austrians Valenciennes on the 28th. These disasters enabled Robespierre and the Commune to impose their views as to the conduct of the military affairs of the Republic. Decrees were passed for purifying the army. The aristocrat generals, Bouanais, Bouron, Custine, were removed, and eventually were all sent to the scaffold. Sans culotte, some honest, some capable, many dishonest, many incapable, replaced them. Sans culottism reigned supreme. Civic purity became the universal test, and on this shibboleth, the Commune inaugurated a system of politics of which the Tammany Organization in New York offers the most conspicuous example at the beginning of the 20th century. Hébert was the party boss. His nominees filled the offices. Graft was placed on the order of the day. The Ministry of War and its numerous contracts became the happy hunting ground of the Parisian politician. Hébert himself, on one occasion, working off an edition of 600,000 copies of his Pierre Duchesne through that ministry. And lastly, one must add that the army of the interior, the army facing the Vendée, fell into the hands of the politicians. An incapable drunkard, Rossignol, was placed in command instead of Biron, who, after two victories over the Vendion, was dismissed, imprisoned, and sent to the guillotine. It was perhaps necessary that a brave and dashing soldier of the old school like Biron should be removed from command, if the decrees of the Convention for prosecuting the war against the Vendée were to be carried out. One of those decrees ordered that, quote, the forests shall be raised, the crops cut down, the cattle seized, the minister of war shall send combustible materials of all sorts to burn the woods, brush, and heath, 
unquote. That was the spirit now entering the revolution, the fury of destruction, the dementia of suspicion, the reign of terror. The terrorists were of two sorts, the men of faction like Hebert, together with those who accepted terrorism reluctantly but daringly like Danton. With them, terror was a political weapon. With Robespierre, however, and his Jacobin stalwarts, it was something more, a strangely compounded thing, a political weapon in a sense, but a weapon behind which stood a bigot, a fanatic, a temperament governed by jealous fears and by the morbid revengefulness of the man of feeble physique. It was Robespierre who always stood for the worst side of terrorism, for all that was most insidious and deep-seated in it, and after its failure in the reaction in the summer of 1794, it was his name that was deservedly associated with the reign of terror. Robespierre in the summer of 1793 was still logically maintaining his attitude. While Danton fought the enemies of the Republic, he fought Danton's measures. He told the Jacobin Club that it was always the same proposal they had to face. New levies, new battalions, to feed the great butchery. The plan of the enemies of the people, he did not yet dare declare that Danton was one of them, was to destroy the Republic by civil and foreign war. In a manuscript note found after his death, he says, quote, The interior danger comes from the bourgeois. To conquer them, one must rally the people. The convention must use the people and must spread insurrection. Unquote. In August, carrying his thought a step further, he appeals to the Jacobin Club against the traitors whom he sees in everyone whose opinion diverges a hair's breadth from his own. There are traitors, he declares, even on the Committee of Public Safety, and all traitors must go to the guillotine. At the moment this speech was delivered, Admiral Lord Hood had just captured Toulon, while Marseille was being attacked by Curteau at the head of an army acting for the convention. Coburg, commanding the Austrian forces in the Netherlands, was gaining a series of minor successes, and his cavalry was not much more than four days' march from Paris. Provisions were being gathered into the city by requisition, that is, by armed columns operating in the neighboring departments. Confiscatory measures passed the convention for raising a forced loan of one billion francs for converting, quote, superfluous, unquote, income to the use of the state, a policy of poor man against rich. Alongside of these measures, terrorism was getting into full swing. The Revolutionary Tribunal had its staff quadrupled on the 5th of September. Within a few days, the sections were given increased political powers. And Coulou de Hebois and Billard Verin, the two strongest supporters of Hebert in the convention, were elected to the Committee of Public Safety. On the 17th was passed the famous Loire de Suspect, the most dramatic if not the first decree on that burning question. It provided that all partisans of federalism and tyranny, all enemies of liberty, all ci devant nobles not known for their attachment to the new institutions, must be arrested, and further that the section committees must draw up lists of suspects residing within their districts. All this meant a repetition on a larger and better organized plan of the massacres of a year before. As Danton had said in the debates on the Revolutionary Tribunal, quote, This tribunal will take the place of that supreme tribunal, the vengeance of the people. 
let us be terrible so as to dispense the people from being terrible. Unquote. Judicial, organized terror was to replace popular, chaotic terror. With terror now organized, the prisons filled, and the Revolutionary Tribunal sending victims to the guillotine daily, the internal struggle became one between two terrorists' parties, of Hébert and of Robespierre, both committed to the policy of the day, but with certain differences. Hébert viewed the system as one affording personal safety, the executioner being safer than the victim, and the best opportunity for graft. The man of means was singled out by his satellites for suspicion and arrest, and was then informed that a judicious payment in the right quarter would secure release. Beyond that, Hebert probably cared little enough one way or the other. He was merely concerned in extracting all the material satisfaction he could out of life. With Robespierre, the case was different. It was a struggle for a cause, for a creed, a creed of which he was the only infallible prophet. Poor, neat, respectable, unswerving but jealous, he commanded wide admiration as the type of the incorruptible Democrat. Stiffly and self-consciously he was reproducing the popular prose of Benjamin Franklin. Between him and Hebert there could be no real union. He was willing, while Hebert remained strong in his hold on the public, to act alongside of him, but that was all. Under the pressure of the Commune and the Mountain, the Convention put the laws of terror in force against the defeated Gironde on the 3rd of October. Forty-three deputies, including Philip Egalité, were sent to the tribunal, and about one hundred others were outlawed or ordered under arrest. The Convention, having thus washed its hands before the public, now felt able to make a stand against the increasing encroachments of the Commune, and on the 10th, Saint-Just proposed that the government should continue revolutionary till the peace, which meant that the Committee of Public Safety should govern, and the Constitution remain suspended. The Committee showed as much vigor in dealing with the provinces as it showed feebleness in dealing with Paris. Through August and September, rebellious Lyon had been besieged. Early in October, it fell. The Committee proposed a decree which the Convention accepted, from June 1793 to July 1794, it accepted everything, declaring that Lyon should be raised to the earth. Couthon was sent to carry out this draconian edict, but proved too mild. At the end of October, Coulot de Herbois, Fouché, and 3,000 Parisian sans-culottes were sent down, and for a while all went well. Houses were demolished, and executions were got in hand with so much energy that cannon and grape-shot had to be used to keep pace with the rapidity of the sentences. About three thousand persons in all probably perished. It was at this moment that in Paris the guillotine, working more slowly but more steadily than Fouché's cannon and grape, was claiming some of its most illustrious victims. From the 12th to the 15th of October, the Revolutionary Tribunal had to deal with the case of Marie Antoinette. The queen, who had been treated with increased severity since the execution of the king, supported the attacks of the pitiless public prosecutor Fouquet-Tonville with firmness and dignity. The accusations against her were of the same general character as those against Louis, and will require no special comment. But an incident of the trial brought out some of the most nauseous aspects of the Hébert regime. 
the commune had introduced men of the lowest type at the temple, had placed the Dauphin in the keeping of the infamous cobbler Simon, had attempted to manufacture filthy evidence against the queen. Hebert went into the witness-box to sling mud at her in person, and it was at that moment only, with a look and a word of reply that no instinct could mistake, that she forced a murmur of indignation or sympathy from the public. Robespierre was dining when he heard of the incident, and in his anger with Hebert broke his plate over the table. The queen went to the guillotine, driven in an open cart, on the 16th. A week later, the Girondines went to trial, 21 deputies, among them Brissot, Verniot, Jenson, and Boyer Fonfred. Their trial lasted five days, and among its auditors was Camille Desmoulins. Desmoulins, whose pamphlets had helped place his unfortunate opponents where they stood. Desmoulins, whose heart, whose generosity was stirred, who already was revolting against terrorism, who was suddenly overwhelmed with a wave of remorse when sentence of death was pronounced against the men of the Gironde. It was the first revolt of opinion against the reign of terror, the first perceptible movement of the conscience of France, and it was to send Desmoulins himself to the guillotine. The Girondines went to the scaffold on the 31st of October. The Duc d'Orléans on the 6th of November. Four days later, Madame Roland, who met death perhaps a little pedantically, but quite nobly. Then, on the 12th, Bailey. Of the Girondines who had escaped from Paris, several committed suicide. Roland, on receiving news of his wife's death, others within the next few months. Condorcet, Petion, Bouzeau. In this same month of November 1793 was introduced the revolutionary calendar, of which more will be said in the last chapter. The holy seventh day disappeared in favor of the anti-clerical tenth day. Decadi, saints' days, and church festivals were wiped out. This new departure was a step forward in the religious question which, a few weeks later, brought about an acute crisis. Between October and December, the climax and the turn were reached in the Vendian War. After heavy fighting in October, Henri de la Roche-Jacqueline had invaded Brittany, defeating the Republicans at Chateau Gontier on the 25th. Rossignol now had under his orders the garrison of Mainz and two excellent subordinates in Kleber and Marceau, who succeeded, in spite of their commander, in wresting success at last. On the 13th of December, a tremendous struggle took place at Le Mans, in which the Vendines were beaten after a loss of about 15,000 men. Kleber gave them no respite, but a few days later cut up the remnants at Savonnet. Although fighting continued long afterwards, this proved the end of the Vendian Grand Army. These victories were immediately followed by judicial repression. The conventional carrier organized a revolutionary tribunal at Nantes, and committed worse horrors than Fouché had at Lyon. Finding a rate of 200 executions a day insufficient, he invented the Noyade. River barges were taken, their bottoms were hinged so as to open conveniently, and prisoners, tied in pairs, naked and regardless of sex, were taken out in them and released into the water. At Nantes, like at Arras and several other points, the proceedings of the revolutionary tribunals and of the gangs who worked the prisons were marked by gross immorality in dealing with the women prisoners. At Nantes, 
Carrier, most thorough and most infamous of the terrorists, is said to have caused the death of 15,000 persons in four months. The fury of the revolution, which turned to frenzy and dementia at Nantes, blazed into a marvelous flame of patriotic energy on the frontiers. Nearly half a million men were enrolled in the course of 1793. A new volunteer battalion was added to each battalion of the old army, the new unit being named a demi-brigade. Rankers were pushed up to high command, partly by political influence, partly for merit. Jordan, an old soldier, a shopkeeper, became general of the Army of the North, and on the 15th of October defeated Coburg at Vauquenez. The brilliant Hoch, ex-corporal of the French guards, was placed at the head of the Army of the Moselle. Pichigru, the son of a peasant, took over the Army of the Rhine. Under these citizen generals, new tactics replaced the old. Pipe clay and method gave way to sans culottism and dash. The greatest of the generals of the revolution said, quote, I had sooner see a soldier without his breeches than without his bayonet. Unquote. Rapidity, surprise, the charging column, the helter-skelter pursuit, were the innovations of the new French generals. They translated into terms of tactics and strategy Danton's famous apostrophe, quote, Audacity, more audacity, yet more audacity. Unquote. End of chapter 13.